Come all ye men from every state, our creed is broad and fair. Buchanan is our candidate to take the White House chair. For there is balm in Gilead, we hear the people say. Buchanan and John Breckenridge will surely win the day. Come all ye Democrats, hear the people say. Buchanan and John Breckenridge will surely win the day. Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan. Episode 15, James Buchanan, Ol' Humbugger. As you may have picked up by now, the 1850s were not the best decade for American presidential leadership. First, we had Millard Fillmore, the Whig whose radical support for slavery destroyed his political party. Then, we had Franklin Pierce, the Democrat whose radical support of slavery nearly destroyed his political party. Today, we have James Buchanan, the Democrat whose radical support of slavery will temporarily destroy the Union. It really is amazing Buchanan didn't learn anything from the other two guys. The thing is, I feel like there's this perception out there that James Buchanan was a victim of circumstance, as if after Fillmore and Pierce, there was nothing Buchanan could do to save the Union. He was dealt a losing hand, and folding was his only option. But the thing is, James Buchanan wasn't just some hapless guy at the table, dealt an unwinnable hand. He's one of the most experienced presidents we've ever had. Before he was even sworn in, Buchanan used that experience to secretly interfere in a major case before the Supreme Court to make sure he got the opening hand, the opening issues he wanted. And then he kept rigging the game, using every form of corruption imaginable to get every card he wanted. He just didn't realize he was building a hand for civil war. So get ready for the story of one of the worst presidents in American history. James Buchanan was born in a log cabin in the foothills of Pennsylvania on April 23, 1791. He was the second of 11 children and a rebellious youth. In 1807, he attended Dickerson College, where he got kicked out for bad behavior, before being reinstated, because by now, daddy had money. Buchanan entered politics in 1814 at the age of 23 when he was elected to the Pennsylvania State Congress as an anti-war federalist during the War of 1812. If you remember back to episode 4 on James Madison, this war was highly unpopular in northern states, which were badly impacted by the loss of trade. So Buchanan started as a federalist, but that ship sank pretty much immediately after he got on it, so he'll be joining Andrew Jackson's Democrats before you know it. In 1819, a 28-year-old up-and-coming Buchanan became engaged to Anne Coleman, the daughter of a new-money iron magnate. But it didn't end well. After getting Anne to say yes to the engagement, Buchanan basically disappeared. He was always off traveling for his political work, and when he was back in town, Anne wasn't necessarily the first woman he came calling on. After one such departure, his first call back in town was a friend's house, where he stayed up late chatting with the friend's single sister after everyone else had gone to bed. When the neglected Anne learned of this, she broke off the engagement, 
which shocked Buchanan. But he didn't seem to really try to change her mind. And then, a month later, things took a tragic turn. Anne was visiting friends in another city to lift her depression over the breakup when she caught a cold and was prescribed an opiate, which she appears to have overdosed on. She died there at the age of 23. Buchanan, he never engaged in a serious relationship again. He would never marry. He'd never be engaged. He'd be a bachelor for life. As a result, there is some speculation that Buchanan may have been our first gay president. But I'm not going to get into that now because in a first for this podcast, I'm excited to say that I'm going to follow this episode with an interview with Professor Thomas Belserski, a scholar of early American history at Eastern Connecticut State University. Belserski recently published a book about Buchanan and his sexuality titled Bosom Friends, The Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King. So we'll get into all that when we talk to Professor Belserski in our next episode. I can't wait to share it with you. Okay, so more on that in our next episode. For now, let's get back to the narrative. After this broken engagement, Buchanan basically spent the next 40 years climbing the political ladder. Congressman, senator, minister to Russia for President Jackson, secretary of state for President Polk, minister to the United Kingdom for President Pierce, and eventually president in his own right in 1857. In all of that, there are really just two influential and revealing experiences I want to focus on before we jump to President Buchanan, and that's his initial decades living as a bachelor roommate of Southern representatives and his four years as President Polk's Secretary of State. So first off, that living situation. 1820s Washington, D.C. wasn't a very developed town. Remember, the government didn't even move there until 1800, and then the British burned the government buildings down in 1814, so there's not exactly a bunch of one-bedroom bachelor pads waiting around for unmarried congressmen to snatch up. I, <laughs> I don't think bachelor pads were even a thing yet. Instead, legislatures found roommates, and the smart congressmen look for roommates who might become powerful allies. Maybe you look for someone who shares your beliefs, or who came from your state. Or, if you're playing the long game and feeling ambitious, maybe you room with people from faraway places, where you might want support if you ever, you know, run for president. Buchanan took the latter track. Buchanan moved in with a number of Southern bachelor representatives, including Alabama Senator William Rufus King, and became good friends with them. But the funny thing about friends is, let's be honest, friends impact each other's views on things. So while Buchanan entered Congress kind of ambivalent on slavery, his years of living with slavery advocates, and I mean fierce slavery advocates, turned him into a bit of a radical on the issue. The pro-slavery values of his roommates washed over Buchanan in a kind of baptism of bigotry. By 1830, Buchanan was all in, arguing that, though slavery was evil, it couldn't be undone because it would lead to the massacre of, quote, the high-minded and chivalrous race of men in the South. So, when Buchanan starts doing some crazy things in a little bit, this is where that comes from. The seed was planted here. The second big moment of pre-presidential Buchanan's life was his time as President Polk's Secretary of State. 
This is where you see how wishy-washy Buchanan can be when stress is high. So, first off, Polk became president in 1845, and Buchanan was a very established Democratic senator by then, who had served as minister to Russia under President Jackson. So Polk asked Buchanan, how would you like to be Secretary of State? It's an incredibly prestigious position that, historically, is a great stepping stone to the White House. Five of the first eight presidents had been a previous president's Secretary of State. But Buchanan could not decide if he wanted the job. And a little bit of background, in the final months of the previous administration, Buchanan had been offered a seat on the Supreme Court, and he had said no. And then when Polk asked Buchanan if he wanted to be Secretary of State, Buchanan, yeah, he said yes. But then Buchanan started having second thoughts. He changed his mind. He said, no, actually, I do want to be on the Supreme Court, not at state. And Polk said, okay, sure. And then Buchanan said, wait, wait, wait. I've changed my mind again. I don't want the Supreme Court. I want state. And Polk said, all right, you can have state. And then Buchanan said, wait, 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 wait. I changed my mind again, again. I want the Supreme Court. And so it continued until Buchanan finally settled at state. And I'm kind of amazed Polk gave him anything at all after all that waffling. And and so was the aging Andrew Jackson, who told Polk that he was making a mistake by putting Buchanan at state. But General, Polk said, you appointed Buchanan as minister to Russia. Yes, Jackson replied. It was as far as I could send him, where he could do the least harm. I would have sent him to the North Pole if we kept a minister there. Which is harsh, and which will be validated. As Secretary of State, Buchanan should have been an integral part of one of the busiest four years in American foreign policy history. Polk is the president who took us to war with Mexico, seized the American Southwest at the end of the war, and who negotiated the annexation of the Oregon Territory, which the United States had jointly occupied with Great Britain. This should have been a huge opportunity for Buchanan to show his stuff, which he did! And unfortunately, it wasn't very good stuff. For example, the Oregon Territory. Polk decided early on that this was going to be a game of chicken where the nation that blinked first would be the nation that lost Oregon. He wrote of Great Britain at the time, quote, The only way to treat John Bull is to look him in the eye. Meaning he wanted a very assertive posture. Oregon's ours, not yours. Bite me. And Buchanan was kind of freaked out by this. He's not someone who enjoys games of chicken. So he kept trying to get Polk to pull the ripcord and bail. But Polk said no. And the assertive stance worked, and the United States got the Oregon Territory, despite Buchanan's reticence. But that's not the only place Buchanan dithered. When Polk went to war with Mexico, Buchanan was so afraid of how Europe would react that he wanted to get official word out that the Mexican-American War was not about getting territory. Which was a problem with Polk, because the war was totally about getting territory. Like, duh, are you down with Manifest Destiny, son? If Buchanan had his way, the United States might never have gotten California and the American Southwest. So Polk again overruled him. No promises were made about not taking land. (laughs) And then, funny thing, after Mexico was defeated and after a treaty had been sent to Washington that would have given us half of Mexico's territory, Buchanan had a change of heart. He wanted more. Look at the current map of Mexico. 
Buchanan wanted half of what's there. This would have meant the United States would have taken three quarters of pre-war Mexico's territory. And I mean, taking half was already crazy. Taking three quarters is just more crazy. And it, it, like it was never going to fly. But the reason Buchanan wanted this was that now that the war was won, his ambition for higher office had eclipsed his fears of what pushing for more might mean for the United States. He wanted to be seen as a strong advocate of manifest destiny. And basically, American imperialism, uh, he's a guy, I'm not going to talk too much more about this, but he is always looking for opportunities to grab more southern land. Like, he'll, he'll put out a policy paper later that says we should grab Cuba. And uh, later when he's president, he's going to try to convince everybody, hey, let's go invade Mexico. But no one's really going to listen. He, he is always trying to take more southern land. Because southern land is ideal for slavery, and he's just uh, uh, playing to that southern constituency he's been nursing for so long. Uh, so that's Buchanan as Secretary of State. He was wishy-washy, <laughs> devoid of principles, lacking in backbone, and only interested in his own political future. Or, as Polk put it, quote, Buchanan is an able man, but in small matters without judgment, and sometimes acts like an old maid. Okay, so as we step away from Secretary Buchanan at the end of his term in 1848, I hope I've painted a good picture of who Buchanan is. He's a veteran northern politician who is wildly pro-slavery from his time living with southern representatives, and he's not someone who shows the best of judgment in high-pressure situations. It's a good thing we're about to make him president. Buchanan first came up as a presidential candidate in 1848 the end of Polk's presidency. Uh, but he was easily beat at the convention where he finished third in polling. He ran again in 1852, and this time he nearly won it. He was one of three favorites who were gridlocked for 48 ballots before Franklin Pierce came out of nowhere and won on the 49th uh, en route to winning the presidency. Buchanan actually led all candidates on 10 of those ballots, but he never did punch through. But then the 1856 election came around, and the Democrats were totally over Pierce over his handling of Kansas, which Buchanan's also going to have to deal with, so a quick refresher. During the Pierce presidency, President Pierce and a powerful Democratic senator named Stephen Douglas forced through legislation that nullified the old Missouri Compromise, which had banned slavery in most of the land uh, acquired from the Louisiana Purchase. And they said residents could now vote for themselves if they wanted to allow or forbid slavery when they organized the Kansas Territory's government, which sounded great. I mean, put it up for a vote. That's democracy. But then armed border ruffians from the neighboring slave state of Missouri swarmed into Kansas on Election Day, took over polling places, stuffed ballot boxes, and fraudulently elected a radically pro-slavery territory legislature that, among other things, made it a capital offense to so much as share abolitionist literature. Most people in Kansas did not support this pro-slavery legislature. So they elected an anti-slavery shadow government. And then Pierce had to decide which one to support. And he chose the pro-slavery one. The actions Pierce took to support the pro-slavery legislature destroyed his northern support and nearly split the Democratic Party. So yeah, in 1856, the Democrats were totally ready to kick him to the curb and elect someone else. 
And that's when Buchanan popped back on the radar. In 17 ballots, Buchanan defeated Franklin Pierce and Stephen Douglas during the 1856 presidential nomination. It really helped that he'd been minister to England the past four years, so he had no public position that everybody knew about in regards to Kansas. In the general election, Buchanan faced the first ever Republican presidential nominee, John C. Fremont, and former Whig president turned know-nothing Millard Fillmore. As I mentioned in episode 13 on Fillmore, everybody knew Buchanan would win this one. The real question was which party would finish second, because that party would likely become the major opposition party of the future. As expected, Buchanan romped his rivals in the Electoral College, 174 for Buchanan, to 114 for the Republicans, and 8 for the know-nothings. The presidency was his, but while he'd won the Electoral College, he'd only captured 45% of the popular vote, and all of his state losses came in the North. Buchanan should have interpreted this as a need to broaden his base with some olive branches to the North, but he's not going to do that. Instead, well, he's kind of going to light the olive branches on fire. And so, on March 4th, 1857, James Buchanan, the most experienced man ever elected to the presidency, was sworn in as the 15th president of the United States. Buchanan was 66 years old, and he had spent nearly 40 of those years in government service as a congressman, senator, minister to Russia and Great Britain, and secretary of state. So what did the world and the nation look like when Buchanan became president? Let's take a look around. In Europe, the Crimean War had just come to an end, bringing a fleeting peace back to the continent. In South America, the bloodiest war in that continent's history had just begun, the War of the Triple Alliance between Paraguay and an alliance of Argentina, the Empire of Brazil, and Uruguay. If 3 versus 1 doesn't sound fair, it wasn't. Paraguay would be devastated by this war over the next four years. China was also dealing with all sorts of problems, internal strife, and the start of the Second Opium War, which increasingly put China under the yoke of European powers. In the United States, well, I've talked about the Cluster Fork in Kansas, but this was also a time of great growth for the railroad industry. Railroad mileage would more than triple from 1850 to 1860, with most of it being built in the north, which will be handy when there's a civil war in four years. Economically, the United States was enjoying a historic 15-year run of economic expansion. The country hadn't experienced a recession since 1841, thanks to expansion in transportation, the discovery of gold in California, and an agricultural boom brought on by the Crimean War, which forced most of Europe to buy American grain instead of Russian grain. That run of good luck is going to end pretty soon. But the biggest event in the United States uh, as Buchanan was entering office was in the Supreme Court where the justices were deliberating what to do with the case of a slave petitioning for his freedom, Dred Scott, a case that Buchanan is totally going to corrupt the outcome of. And that's where I'm going to begin the Buchanan presidency. 
a presidency that will be dominated by three things. The Dred Scott case, more drama in bleeding Kansas, and then the descent to civil war when seven states secede during Buchanan's final months in office. And let's start with Dred Scott. Dred Scott and his wife, Harriet Robinson, were the slaves of an army doctor who lived in the South, but who was twice deployed to free states or free territories, and who took Scott with him both times. When the army doctor died back in the South in 1843, Scott and his wife sued for their freedom, saying that since they had spent some time living in free states or territories, they should now be free. So that's the question at the heart of this case. If a state outlaws slavery and you bring a slave there, are they still a slave? This case bounced from court to court, appeal to appeal, from 1846 until it finally reached the Supreme Court a decade later in 1856. It was still being deliberated when Buchanan won his election, and when he looked at this case, he saw an opportunity. Buchanan wasn't entirely dumb. He saw how the debate over slavery was causing a lot of friction between the North and South, and he saw how it was invigorating that new Republican Party. So he called up the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, a fellow Pennsylvanian, and he leaned heavily on the justice to come up with a ruling that would end the slavery debate once and for all. Buchanan figured if we put this to bed with a big Supreme Court ruling, the Republicans will uh, lose their signature issues, that party will die on the vine, and the Democrats might enjoy one-party rule for decades to come. But... Remember what I said earlier about Buchanan's opinions on slavery? I'll give you one guess which way he wanted the Supreme Court to rule. That's right. In a 7-2 decision, the Supreme Court ruled that African Americans could not sue for their freedom in federal court because they could never be citizens of the United States. Uh, and I'm quoting from the ruling here, quote, we think that black people are not included and were not intended to be included under the word citizen in the Constitution, and can therefore claim none of the rights and privileges which that instrument provides for and secures to citizens of the United States. The ruling continued, saying African Americans were, quote, so far inferior that they had no rights to which the white man was bound to respect, and that the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit. Which, holy hell, man, what the heck was that? But there's still more. The Supreme Court went on to say that Congress had exceeded its authority when it passed the Missouri Compromise back in 1820, and it went beyond the Kansas-Nebraska Act by declaring the Missouri Compromise fully null and void. The federal government could no longer ban slavery in federal territories, which is exactly what the South had been wanting for decades. And Buchanan thought he had done a bang-up job. Good job. Solve that one. The North disagreed, by the way. Because this was crazy. I mean, what's next? The Supreme Court just said, quote, the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit. I mean, how far off are we from forcing northern states to reimpose slavery on their black inhabitants? And what's this about African Americans can't be citizens? I'm like, what? <laughs> so yeah, that's the Dred Scott ruling. 
before he was even president, Buchanan influenced the Supreme Court to give him the ruling he wanted because he thought it would put the slavery issue to bed. It was announced two days after he was sworn in. So Buchanan is not some hapless guy playing the cards he was dealt. He told the Supreme Court, these are the cards I want, and they gave them to him. So, with the slavery question in the territories resolved, Buchanan moved on to the next big item on his list, bleeding Kansas. And get ready, because he's going to rig the deck again. And it's not going to be pretty. So, as I mentioned a moment ago, the situation in Kansas was bad. There was a pro-slavery government that was fraudulently elected, and there was an anti-slavery shadow government that it actually did have the support of most Kansans. In 1857, Buchanan said he wanted the two sides to settle the matter by skipping go and advancing directly to statehood by electing delegates to a convention where a state constitution would be written and then voted on via direct referendum by the people of Kansas. Once approved, the Constitution would then be sent to D.C., where Buchanan and Congress would sign off on it to put it into effect. So that's the process. Convention, referendum, congressional approval. For Kansas, this is ballgame. Slavery or freedom. Whichever side gets its Constitution adopted, that is game, set, match. The first thing Buchanan did to get this process rolling was appoint a new federal governor to look over Kansas. This is basically the assignment you do not want. The governor is supposed to keep the two sides from killing each other while making sure the convention and referendum processes are fair and lawful. So the new governor calls for an election whereby Kansans can elect delegates to the convention to write that constitution. And wouldn't you know it, a whole bunch of border ruffians swarmed over from Missouri again to take over polling places and stuff ballot boxes to stack the convention with pro-slavery delegates who would write the constitution they wanted, not the one actual Kansans wanted. And, I mean, they weren't even trying to make this look honest. There were precincts where only three or four homes even existed, but 1,200 ballots were cast for pro-slavery candidates. Which is bad, right? But don't worry, the governor, who, remember, he's responsible for this process being fair and lawful, he steps in. He looks at some of those counties with just impossible ballot numbers, and he throws those counties out, resulting in a more balanced convention. But this super pissed off the South and embarrassed Buchanan. And then, well, the pro-slavery guys, eh, they decided this whole democracy thing is kind of overrated. And that's when the convention, referendum, congressional approval process really began to go off the rails. Sixty pro-slavery delegates skipped the Kansas convention and wrote a pro-slavery constitution all on their own. And then, instead of trying to pass it by a territory-wide referendum, as they were supposed to do, they just mailed it straight to Buchanan, skipping straight to the congressional approval step. As in, that's right. Nobody in Kansas was going to be allowed to vote on their own state's constitution, which they also didn't really get a chance to write. Now, Buchanan decided that approving this constitution straight away would be a bit too on the nose, so he came up with a solution, which was not much better. Buchanan arranged for a referendum in Kansas where the people would get to vote between two constitutions, one with slavery and one without slavery. And when I say one without slavery, I mean it totally still had slavery. 
both constitutions were virtually identical to the one the pro-slavery delegates had sent to Buchanan. The only difference was the so-called no-slavery constitution said no new slaves could be brought into Kansas. But the 200 slaves already in Kansas? They were totally still slaves. And all their descendants would be too. So either way, Kansas would totally be a slave state. You had to pick between one of these two constitutions. There was no none-of-the-above option. The free state Kansans were so pissed off by this non-choice that they boycotted the official referendum and held their own unofficial referendum instead, where they did have a neither option on the ballot. And wouldn't you know it, Buchanan's referendum resulted in about four to 6,000 votes in favor of slavery all the way, uh, beating the no-imported-slaves constitution. And I say four to 6,000 votes because there was more fraud again and I mean, probably like 2,000 of those may have been fake. The free state referendum resulted in 10,265 votes for the none of the above option. It was an unofficial referendum, so it was technically meaningless. But when the slavery all the way constitution reached Washington, D.C., everybody knew that most Kansans didn't want it. Okay, so the ball is now back in Buchanan's court. His original plan, convention, referendum, congressional approval hadn't gone too well. Everybody knew that pro-slavery border ruffians were forcing slavery on Kansas against Kansans' will. Would Buchanan reject this pro-slavery constitution and start over? Heck no, he wouldn't. Buchanan threw his full support behind the slavery all the way constitution for Kansas. But now that the ball is in Buchanan's court, he's really going to have to hustle if he wants to get it in the net because he still needs to get congressional approval for this, I mean, very fraudulent constitution. And everybody in the North, they're kind of horrified, including any remaining Democrats in that region, such as Illinois' influential Democratic Senator Stephen A. Douglas. Between the Republicans and the Northern Democrats, Buchanan was going to have a heck of an uphill fight getting Congress to approve this constitution. But don't worry. It wasn't anything a little corruption couldn't fix. Buchanan went to extreme measures to get the slavery all the way constitution approved by Congress. Cabinet members pressured legislators. Pork projects were dangled. Patronage was promised. Bribes were distributed. And even prostitutes may have been used to entice congressmen into line. Buchanan did everything he could think of to bend Congress to his will, but he failed. This was just a bridge too far for everyone in the North. Congress refused to ratify a state constitution that hadn't even passed an honest referendum. But Buchanan's nothing if not stubborn when slavery's on the line. He decided that if Congress needed an honest referendum, he'd give them an honest referendum. And if Congress couldn't be bribed, well, maybe Kansas could. The slavery all the way constitution was sent back to Kansas with a caveat attached. If Kansas voted to accept the slavery all the way constitution in a fair referendum, it could immediately be admitted as a state and 4 million acres of federal land would be given to the state's government to get it off to a running financial start. But if Kansans voted against the slavery all the way constitution, they would have to wait until their population grew bigger before trying for statehood again and the state government wouldn't be getting all that free land. 
Buchanan wrestled just enough arms to get congressional approval before sending this referendum over to Kansas, confident in victory. But again, he failed. In 1858, 1,800 Kansans voted in favor of the Slavery All the Way Constitution, and 11,300 Kansans voted against it. So, by a 10-to-1 margin, Kansas voted against immediate statehood and 4 million acres of federal land in order to keep slavery out of Kansas. And now, finally, Buchanan threw up his arms and said, screw it! He was done! Kansas would eventually be admitted as a free state in January 1861, but Buchanan, he was just over it. Oh, and uh, I need to mention John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry right about now. John Brown was a radical white abolitionist who, with his followers, murdered a handful of Kansans who supported the pro-slavery government during Bleeding Kansas. Well, after that issue was finally put to bed, he decided he wasn't done killing his way to abolition. On October 16, 1859, Brown and 20-plus followers raided and occupied the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, in a totally insane bid to spark a slave uprising in the South. He was quickly surrounded and captured by none other than Robert E. Lee. Then Brown was put on trial and hung. But this episode totally freaked out white Southerners, contributing to their fears and their eventual decision to secede. But that's getting a bit ahead of myself. Back to Buchanan and the consequences of his Kansas policy. Because, oh boy, there were consequences. The North and the West were so offended by his attempts to force the pro-slavery constitution on Kansas that Democrats suffered resounding defeats in the midterms, sweeping the Republican Party to power in Congress. And power in Congress means the power to open investigations. The final two years of Buchanan's presidency were dominated by investigations into the graft and corruption he had used to strengthen the Democratic Party and to try to enact his will in Kansas. All sorts of stuff was dug up. In addition to the Kansas shenanigans, Buchanan was found to have overpaid federal contracts to companies who then gave kickbacks to the Democratic Party. As in, the work you're doing should cost $10, but I'm going to pay you $100, and then you're going to give me $50. Capiche? Investigators found Buchanan had blackmailed and bribed congressmen and senators for their votes and more. And this is where things might just start to sound familiar to an audience in 2021. Buchanan said Congress had no right to investigate the executive branch, and he refused to cooperate. He called the investigation an inquisition and said anyone who testified was a parasite. He supported primary challengers to members of his own party who weren't sufficiently loyal to him. And he argued he couldn't have personally been bribed because he was too rich to be bribed. The investigations resulted in a report that concluded Buchanan was clearly guilty of all of it, but pulled up short of recommending impeachment. Buchanan claimed complete exoneration. But, well, this wasn't a popular recipe for re-election. So Buchanan didn't even try. He sat out the 1860 election and was horrified when Republican candidate Abraham Lincoln, a one-term congressman and lawyer from Illinois, 
beat his Democratic challenger to win the White House. And that takes us to the third major event of Buchanan's presidency, the Secession Crisis. On November 6, 1860, Abraham Lincoln became the first Republican to win the presidency. His message had been simple and clear. I'm not going to outlaw slavery where it exists, but I'm not going to let it expand to federal territory regardless of what the Supreme Court said in that Dred Scott ruling. But that's not how it was heard in the South. You know today how we talk about people living in information bubbles, uh, where they only seek out and listen to news and information that reinforces and radicalizes their own political views? Well, that was happening in 1860 United States, too. The Democratic press had convinced Southerners that Lincoln and the Republicans would free all their slaves if elected, and then there'd be a race war and all the Southern whites would be killed. And people believed it. On November 10th, 1860, just four days after Lincoln was elected, South Carolina, the state that had tried to secede alone during the nullification crisis back in 1832, they decided they wanted to have another go at it, and they called a convention to discuss disunion. This time, they'd have company. On December 20th, South Carolina seceded. Mississippi followed on January 9th, then Florida on January 10th, Alabama on January 11th, Georgia on the 19th, Louisiana on the 26th, and Texas on February 1st. That is seven states in 44 days, all on Buchanan's watch. Four other states will secede in the opening months of the Lincoln administration. And James Buchanan, who was still president until March 4th, he kind of made things worse. Back in December, when the South was talking about secession, but nobody had left yet, Buchanan gave a speech saying secession was illegal, but stopping secession was also illegal. He argued that neither Congress nor the president had the power to make war on seceding states, which is a heck of a green light on secession. Remember in episode 7 on Andrew Jackson, when we covered the nullification crisis? South Carolina had wanted to secede, and Jackson had acted swiftly. He'd mobilized the Navy. He had rotated soldiers to make sure South Carolina garrisons were loyal. He had fortified federal positions, and he sent agents to pressure the secessionists to stand down. And at the same time Jackson had threatened with a stick, Henry Clay had offered a, a compromise off-ramp as a carrot, and the crisis had been diffused. But neither of those things were happening in the winter of 1860-61. Former President John Tyler, uh, he, he tried, he helped organize a convention to come up with a compromise, but the delegates couldn't agree on one. There was no carrot, there was no stick. If anything, there was support for Southern secession and the Buchanan administration. I hadn't gotten into it yet, but Buchanan's cabinet had several members who were radically pro-Southern, just like he was. And as states started to secede, Unionist Northerners in the administration, they started to resign. Buchanan's Secretary of War, who would actually become a Confederate general when the fighting broke out, he used the final months in office to ship small arms and artillery to the South so it would be in Confederate hands when the shooting started. Other Southerners in Buchanan's administration acted as spies, relaying any information of value to the Confederate government that was organizing in Montgomery, Alabama. Four members of Buchanan's cabinet would join the Confederate government after the outbreak of war. As federal arsenals and supply depots were captured throughout the South, 
the epicenter of the crisis quickly centered on South Carolina, where, on Christmas night, 1860, loyal federal troops abandoned their old and indefensible fort and moved to a new fortification, Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor. When Buchanan learned they had moved to Fort Sumter, he freaked out. He wanted to order them back, but he was talked out of it. Then he learned the besieged garrison was running out of supplies. On January 5th, 1861, he ordered a ship carrying fresh supplies and 250 men to reinforce Fort Sumter. But spies told the Confederates that the ship was on its way, and when it reached the harbor, Confederate guns opened fire and drove it off. In Washington, D.C., a Texas senator taunted his northern colleagues. Your flag has been insulted. Redress it if you dare. Buchanan didn't dare. The crisis appeared to have broken him. He developed a twitch in his eye. He couldn't get out of bed most days. He began forgetting what he'd read and what orders he'd given. His only wish was that the Confederacy would wait until he was out of office before starting the war, so he might blame the war on Lincoln instead of himself. As the South prepared for war, Buchanan didn't lift a finger to stop it. On March 11, 1861, a new Southern government, the Confederate States of America, ratified a constitution similar to the North's, but with radical protections for the institution of slavery. By then, Buchanan was out of office. Lincoln had been sworn in seven days earlier on March 4th. It was his problem now. Thus ends the administration of James Buchanan. If you're going to remember three things, I'd recommend Dred Scott, the Supreme Court ruling Buchanan asked for that opened federal territory to slavery and said African Americans couldn't even be citizens. Bleeding Kansas, the mini-civil war where Buchanan engaged in every act of corruption he could think of to try to enact a pro-slavery constitution, but thankfully he failed. And the secession crisis. When southern states started seceding, Buchanan didn't lift a finger to stop them, allowing the Confederacy precious time to organize and mobilize for a war that would kill more than 600,000 Americans. Okay, so that was pretty crazy, right? But that highway to the Civil War was not the only thing that was happening during the Buchanan administration. Domestically, three new states were added. Minnesota on May 11th, 1858, Oregon on February 14th, 1859, and eventually Kansas on January 29th, 1861. The United States also suffered an economic recession in 1857. Remember earlier this episode when I said the Crimean War had resulted in an American agricultural boom as Western Europe had to buy American grain instead of Russian grain? Well, when the Crimean War ended in 1856, Europe started buying Russian grain again, and that ag bubble burst. At around that same time, a a large ship carrying gold from California sank at sea, gold that was badly needed by banks in New York. And then an old-fashioned bank panic took off when an Ohio corporation tried to call in some bad loans that weren't repaid, uh, forcing it to suspend some of its own payments, and sending ripple effects of loan defaults across the economy. This recession, the Panic of 1857, 1,400 banks and 5,000 businesses would go bankrupt during it. There was also this totally crazy Mormon crisis out west during the Buchanan administration. In short, the Mormons were 
pretty much the only occupants of the Utah area at this time. The Mormon religion had started in the American Northeast in 1830, but it had moved west in a series of migrations when, to put it nicely, the Mormons and their neighbors kept not getting along, sometimes resulting in murders. By 1857, the Mormon leader Brigham Young was basically ruling Utah as a quasi-theocracy and bristling against federal attempts to secularize it. When? Well, he, he sort of arranged for a federal surveyor to be assassinated. And then he led a militia to murder 125 non-Mormon pioneers, and he framed some Native American tribes for the massacre. At this point, Buchanan declared the Mormons were in revolt, and he raised an army of 2,500 soldiers to put them down. But before the fighting could break out, a friend brokered a peaceful end to the conflict that saw the Mormons accept secular government and uh, Brigham Young replaced as governor. Which is kind of crazy when you hold up how Buchanan reacted to the Mormons next to how he reacted to Southern secession. One of the biggest differences may have been that the Southerners were seceding over slavery, which Buchanan thought was awesome, and the Mormons were or fighting, I should say, for their religion and polygamy, which Buchanan thought was gross. So yeah, eventful stuff. On the invention front, the first ever patent for a pencil with an eraser attached to it was awarded to Philadelphia inventor Hyman L. Lippmann, an immigrant from Jamaica, on March 30th, 1858. So yay, we have pencils with erasers now! Internationally, the Indian subcontinent officially came under British imperial rule in 1858. The region had long been controlled by the British East India Company, but a revolt in 1857 convinced the crown to take direct control of the situation, beginning 90 years of imperial rule. In 1859, Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species, which put forth his theories on evolution. So, yay, evolution! And also, boo people who are going to use that to justify some really racist stuff over the next 100 years. So that's the nation and the world that Buchanan left behind when his presidency ended in 1861. Buchanan spent the next six years basically trying to defend his administration, even publishing a book of excuses and justifications in 1866. But I'm not sure anybody cared. The best thing that ever happened to Buchanan's legacy was when people started to think maybe he'd been too inept to stop the Civil War, rather than blaming him for his role in starting it. A couple years after the publication of his memoir, Buchanan caught a cold and died on June 1st, 1868, of respiratory failure. He was 77 years old. So, what can we learn from the life and administration of James Buchanan? I think this one's more a lesson for all of his voters, and that's the cost of electing the wrong president. I don't know if the Civil War could have been avoided with another guy, but holy smokes, Buchanan did not help. One of the reasons Buchanan was elected, remember, is because he didn't have a strongly known stance on bleeding Kansas, since he had spent the Pierce administration serving overseas as minister to Great Britain. And this allowed many Americans to simply assume he agreed with them. Remember, this is a democracy. We are all the boss, meaning we are the leaders. Whenever you're casting a vote for someone, whether it's the president, congressman, local dog catcher, 
make sure you know their experience and position on all the issues relevant to that job. If you alone were responsible for putting this president, congressman, or dog catcher in this job, and if you alone were responsible for their success or failure, who would you choose? Make sure you know your candidates' positions on issues that matter, because if you just assume they're going to clean up the whole bleeding Kansas mess because they've never commented on it, well, they might just muck it up so bad that they cause a civil war instead. Before we get to the uh, end of episode music, I'd love to issue a bit of a challenge to you. This episode is roughly the one-year anniversary since Abridged Presidential Histories first launched, and I've been having a blast putting this together for you. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to leave a five-star review on iTunes and recommend the show to a friend. I won't be able to see the recommendations, but I do currently see that I have 70 reviews on iTunes, and I'd love to see if we can hit 100 ahead of my release of episode 16 on Abraham Lincoln on May 1st. If you guys can do that, that would make my day. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. You can follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Presidential Histories. It helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you so much to those of you who have contributed. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. The intro music was a recording of Isaac Brands from Smithsonian Folkway Records. The primary biographies for today's episode were James Buchanan by Gene H. Baker and Bosom Friends by Thomas Balsersky. In our next episode, we'll have that interview with Professor Balsersky, which I'll tell you, I, I already knocked it out, and it's really fascinating. I hope you find it interesting, too. After that, we'll return to the narrative with an episode on Abraham Lincoln, the Great Emancipator, and how he became the man who won the Civil War. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.